James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Just days before his death, Jesus of Nazareth gathered his disciples to provide a sobering account of the day in which the Son of Man, Jesus himself, would return to earth with his army of angels and actually sit on his throne of judgment. Uh, the account is recorded for us in the 25th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. And Jesus said that when this happens, all the nations are going to gather before that throne, and he's going to separate people into two groups, much like a shepherd would separate sheep from goats. The sheep, of course, are a metaphor for those people who actually, by the way, I didn't mean to make you guys all over here goats. That was not intentional. You know, no, I didn't, surely. <laughs> But this, uh, the sheep, of course, they're a metaphor for the people who actually belong to Christ's flock. These are the ones who are going to join him in the kingdom of his father. The goats, on the other hand, are those people who fall under everlasting condemnation. To the one group, he says, inherit the kingdom. And then to the other, he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Now, in our day and age... What's arresting about that story, if you go back and you read Matthew chapter 25, in our day and age, we read that and we think, wow, Jesus is talking about hell. And that says as much about the age in which we live as it does anything else. But what, when you read it in its context, what Jesus says, the, the, the thing that really sticks out is, is something else. Two things, actually. First of all, in the conversations Jesus describes, the difference between the sheep and the goats surprisingly, is not their religious beliefs in that story. It's their works. It's their deeds. It's the things that they do. It's their behaviors. When you compare that to some of the other parts of the New Testament, that's a little surprising. The other thing that sticks out when you read what Jesus says is that in the story, the sheep and the goats, both groups of people, are kind of taken back by both the criteria and the results of the judgment. They are surprised by the results. Like, wait a second, when did this happen? When did we see you in need, Jesus? I'm surprised by the, the judgment. 
Both groups are surprised. It's kind of like what Jesus warns about in another place. He says in Matthew 7, 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Friends, the day will come when many religious people will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and will learn to their horror and alarm that their faith, however we might describe it, is not saving faith. It is empty and useless and ultimately damning. And just like in today's courtrooms, the evidence is what demonstrates guilt or innocence of the accused. Not his emotional pleas, not the skill of the attorneys, not whether or not the jury uh, personally liked the guy that's in the dock or not, but the evidence. So it will be in the last day. When I was a teenager, I remember sitting in uh, a youth rally or something like that and hearing a, a preacher say something like, if you were accused in a court of law, of being a Christian, a follower of Christ, would there be enough evidence to convict? At the time, I thought, hey, that's kind of a cute way to put it, but it makes a certain point. And the, the older I've gotten and the more I've walked with Christ, I've realized that is a great question. But the more we go on, uh, the, the more we've realized it's a great question, and, and, and Pastor James wants us to think about this too. Here in the second half of chapter 2, James is continuing to expand on the distinction that he, grew, he, he, he brought out uh, at the beginning of the letter. There is a marked difference between a man who hears the word and a man who does the word, between a faithful, wise man and a double-minded, unstable man, between someone who is uh, embracing false religion and someone who actually has religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father. And here, we learn that it is possible even to have a kind of faith, but to be no closer to the kingdom of God than the devil himself. So this morning, we're going to consider two movements in this passage. First of all, we're going to consider the risk of faith without works. And then we're going to talk about the relationship of faith and works in those who actually possess saving faith. And then thirdly, we're going to, we're going to ask two real-life questions about how these things kind of connect with us today. So in the first place, consider with me the risk of faith without works. In verses 14 through 19, James makes it clear that it is possible to have a kind of faith that will never save. It's not just any faith that characterizes the life of a person who has a real relationship with God, and the risk is real that you might be walking around with a faith that's actually no faith at all. In fact, I think uh, James probably would have used something like air quotes uh, around that word faith in a couple of these verses, but archaeologists and biblical historians tell us that they didn't have air quotes back then. So, I'm not, jury's still out, but I don't think they had them. It's real, it's fake faith. And here's the problem. You might have faith, but if it is a workless faith, 
then it is a worthless faith. And James gives us three ways in which a counterfeit faith, so easily mistaken for the real thing, is actually insufficient and will end with our destruction. First of all, look at verse 14. James says, what good is it if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? Well, when you put it like that, it seems pretty worthless, but can you give me an example? Of course, yeah, I'd be glad to give you an example. Imagine a brother or a sister, somebody you really care about, comes to you and they need food and they need clothing. They're destitute, they need help, and you say, be warmed and filled. And then you walk away and you don't give them anything. What good is that? Here's the point. Religious talk is insufficient for saving faith. Religious talk is not a sufficient condition for saving faith. You can say you have faith, but that doesn't make it true. You can tell somebody to be warmed and filled, but they will walk away cold and hungry. Because religious talk just doesn't do anything. You might know all sorts of things to say about God and your relationship with him, but just saying those things doesn't make it a reality. Religious talk is not sufficient for saving faith. I'm not sure how close to home James's illustration must have hit with his first century readers. Uh, most scholars and commentators agree that the believers to whom James was writing must have developed some sort of uh, reputation for not having compassion toward those in need, for failing to show mercy to the destitute. Maybe that's the case. But if they were replacing faithful acts of Christ's likeness with religious talk, then they were little different from our culture today. Haven't you found that to be the case? We infuse so much into mere talk. Now, we've developed the skill of using religious-sounding language while completely stripping it of any meaning at all. Have you noticed that this is the case? Uh, you can literally go out and buy a T-shirt that says faith on it, or believe, or trust, and it doesn't necessarily mean anything at all. Everyone's just used to that. You go to a certain restaurant and they're playing positive hits. You know, these songs that are meant to sound vaguely like Christian teaching. And for a huge percentage of our neighbors, these things are part of a cultural heritage, but they never get anywhere close to our hearts. It's just mere empty religious talk, and it has no bearing on whether or not we have a relationship with Jesus Christ at all. Imagine if I went around telling people I'm the pastor at Indian Creek Baptist Church, but I never get up into the pulpit and preach to you on a Sunday. Like, that never happens. It wouldn't matter what I said. Or if I went around telling people, hey, I'm an elite hockey player, but I've never actually laced up a pair of skates. This is the kind of thing religious people do. We talk about religion. We talk about our relationship with God, but it's completely empty, and it has nothing to do with reality. And so the first thing that James reminds us of is that we need to be careful about assigning too much meaning to mere talk. Religious talk is not a sufficient condition of saving faith. But notice how he continues in verses 18 through 19, and he makes this stunning comparison between the false faith of fake Christians on the one hand and the beliefs of demons themselves. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. James is reminding us of the reality of the spiritual realm. This is a reality that most people in the world just don't think about very often, at least not in our Western context. There's this whole unseen realm 
angels and demons, and, and many of these beings are pure evil, and this, there's this whole vast army, and the, they're all in the service of Satan. And, and James says, guess what? Even these beings, these evil spirits, even they have a sort of faith. And yet we all know that one day they will be destroyed along with Satan himself. For example, uh, the first chapter of Mark's gospel, Jesus is walking around Galilee and he's healing the sick and he's, uh, he's, he's uh, casting out demons. And Mark actually records a conversation between one of these demons and the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, we're told in Mark 1.24 that an unclean spirit speaking through the mouth of the person whose body he was controlling calls Jesus out. He says, what, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Listen, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So Jesus encounters this demon who comes right out and says it. Jesus is the Holy One of God, the one who would come and save his people from slavery to Satan. There's a demon who knows about Jesus and believes that he is who he says he is. But did that all of a sudden save him from being cast out? No, Mark tells us Jesus rebuked him. The unclean spirit came out of him. He had a certain kind of faith, but it wasn't saving faith. So there's this kind of faith, this kind of belief, a sort of mental assent to certain truths that nevertheless has nothing to do with whether or not you have a real relationship with God. And so here's the second thing we need to recognize. Not only is, the case, is it the case that, that religious talk is insufficient to saving faith, but more than that, even intellectual assent to the truth is insufficient to saving faith. In other words, if your faith involves mere intellectual assent, if it is the kind of faith that is no different from the beliefs of the demons, then what good is it? That's not saving faith. So we see that neither religious talk nor intellectual assent are sufficient conditions of saving faith. You can say religious things, you can agree with important doctrines, but that does not mean you have the real thing. But then James doesn't even stop there. Did you notice what he says, what, what else he says about the demons? He says in verse 19, even the demons believe and what? And shudder. They tremble. In other words, they, not only is there an intellectual component to the faith of the demons, the, the beliefs of the demons, there's also an emotional component to it. And here's the point. We, we've talked about religious talk and intellectual agreement, but even this, even emotional intensity is an insufficient condition to saving faith. Did you know that? Don't miss this. It is possible to say all the right things, to agree in your mind with what Scripture teaches, and even to get a warm and fuzzy feeling in your tummy when the worship band is playing your favorite song, and not have saving faith. James is saying, so what if you say you have faith? So what if you agree with right doctrine? So what if you feel this funny feeling? None of those things are ultimately sufficient evidence for your, that your faith is worth anything if it doesn't change the way that you live. James says, what about your life? What about the way that you act? Faith without works is dead. And friends, we have a major problem with this in modern evangelical churches today, don't we? 
If you grew up going to an evangelical church, you know, a Baptist church, a non-denominational church, something like that, you've probably seen what I'm talking about. Uh, when I was a teenager, I had the distinct privilege of volunteering in our church's uh, bus ministry. Some of you probably don't know what that is. It's not a ministry to buses. Uh, we would go in a bus, one of the big long ones that holds 72 passengers plus the driver. Three to a seat. And we would go out from our church into these mid-sized cities about 45 minutes away from the church. It was a huge program. At one point in the church's history, more than a thousand people came in buses to our church. It was massive. And in some ways, as I learned as a young teenager, it was a numbers game. We would say, every number is a soul, and we would try to focus on that reality, that the soul part, but it was all too tempting, especially for a young teenager, to sort of begin to tally all of it up in our heads, and we would tally up how many hours we spent visiting on on the Saturday before, and how many people came on each bus, and how many first-time visitors we had, and how many professions of faith were made, And, and sometimes bus captains would actually compete with one another in these like statistical battles. We even had a whole uh, like NFL playoff season where each bus was assigned with like a a football team and we would go head to head against other bus routes. And and it was a lot of fun, but sometimes, just being honest, at least in my mind, it got a little out of hand. One year we told the kids that if we had more than 100 people on our bus route, obviously you needed a backup bus for that. Uh, My friend and I would both swallow a live goldfish. Yes, this happened. How many of you have ever done that before? Be honest. I'm, oh, there's one. Jonna, you and I are the only ones. And you guys don't know what you're missing. <laughs> because more than 100 people came that day, and so we got everybody in the gym on the bleachers, and we had this big sort of rally and, and uh, threw candy at the kids, and then we swallowed a live goldfish and we took them home. It, it was crazy. And when I started to preach, it was tempting to focus on numbers too, on on, on these visible, quantifiable results. And I learned that you could preach the Bible in a certain way to bring about a certain kind of visible result. And that's what I began to cultivate. One summer, I preached during vacation Bible school to more than 500 kids who had come on a bus, and I employed the methodologies that I knew would work And when the time came for the invitation and I asked the kids to come forward if they wanted to get saved, it it felt like half the room got up and walked toward the door. Mandy was there. She was, uh, we were dating at the time. She was probably thinking, what in the world is (laughs) going on? Well, I, I thought, this is great. I walked outside and saw counselors trying to share the gospel with five or six kids at one time. Half the kids seemed to have no idea what was going on. They just got up and went out because their friend had gotten up. The other half were paying attention, uh, maybe a little bit, but they didn't seem to know what was going on either. And it was absolute chaos. And yet when the decision slips came in, dozens and dozens of them had the box checked. I got saved today. And I, I thought, you know, I would be more excited about that. But I had this uneasy feeling. I said, God can work through the chaos, and I agree, but I I could tell something was wrong. I knew a lot of these kids 
I knew many of them had actually gone down the aisle the Sunday before, some of them multiple times. And what I learned was this. Here's what I had done. I had based my entire approach to preaching on a method of bringing about religious talk, intellectual assent to certain truths, and emotional intensity, and that's it, and that's what we got. And it became very clear to me in that moment that what I was trying to do was cultivate these quick and visible results and I had actually communicated something very dangerous to these kids. We were telling kids, hey, you're on your way to heaven when we had no idea whether they were or not. Now I could talk for an hour about how that experience began to change the way that I preach, but here's the point. We need to be careful about the kind of culture that we're building. And too many times we go after a kind of faith that does not result in a changed life. And when we do that, we are actually doing something very dangerous. We're inoculating people against the truths of the gospel because we're giving them some reason to think that they're right with God when in fact they're still living in rebellion. So there is a very real risk associated with a faith that is devoid of works. It was true in James's day and it is true in our day. But we can't just leave it there. So notice with me not only the risk of faith without works, but secondly, the relationship between faith and works in those who truly believe. Uh, I imagine nearly all of you are probably feeling a little bit of a tension when you read a passage like the one that Kevin read earlier in the service. I mean, the constant refrain of the New Testament is that Uh, It's not, here's what Paul said to Titus, it's not by works of righteousness that we've done, it's according to God's mercy that he saved us. That that apart from God's work, apart from Christ's work, we can't be saved. I, I, I thought justification was by faith alone. Didn't Paul say that by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified? And it seems like James is saying the exact opposite. So how can both be true? What is going on here? What's the relationship between faith and works in the lives of people who really truly believe? In fact, it was partly these verses that led the great German reformer, Martin Luther, a man who said some great things and also some really wacky things to conclude that James is an epistle of straw. He said that. And the last thing I want to do is throw out justification by faith alone. So the question we need to ask is that if James is correct in making this assertion, what is the relationship? And to answer this question, James actually helps us out by giving us some examples from the Hebrew Bible. He gives us these two examples, Abraham the patriarch, whose life is recounted in the book of Genesis, and Rahab the prostitute, a fascinating woman who first appears in Scripture in the book of Joshua. By the way, just as an aside, it's really interesting and I think noteworthy to see that the two examples that James cites are actually cited as examples of faith in other parts of the New Testament. Abraham is probably Paul's favorite example. He talks about Abraham's faith both in Romans and Galatians, Uh, The writer of the Hebrews cites both Abraham and Rahab as examples of faith. So James is not off the beaten path here in citing these two examples. But he shows us through these examples the relationship between faith and works. Abraham shows his faith 
When God tests him in Genesis 22 and commands him to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. If you go back and read that account in Genesis 22, uh, you need to do that if, if you haven't already. It's an incredible thing that God asks Abraham to do. But in order to obey God, Abraham has to trust God. He has to believe that God is so powerful that he is able to actually raise someone from the dead and that he is so faithful and so good that he is going to keep his promises even in the midst of an impossible situation. Abraham had to believe God and he showed it by his works. That is faith. That's trust. Rahab is on the opposite end of the social spectrum. She's not a man. She's a woman. She's not a wealthy patriarch that hears directly from God. She's a a prostitute living in a pagan city. But like Abraham, she has to believe that God is so powerful that he's able to defeat an impregnable fortress and that he's so good that he'll actually rescue a prostitute and her family when everybody else around her is being destroyed. She has to trust God, and she puts her own life on the line in support of that faith. So what do we learn from these two examples about the relationship between faith and works? What we learn is that works are not the basis of faith, nor are works like added to faith, like two parts of a religious recipe. You got a little bit of faith, and then you sprinkle in a few good works, and then you'll get right over the line, and you'll be okay with God. No, neither of those things is what James is saying. James is saying works, life decisions, behaviors are evidence of faith. They show our faith. Abraham believed God. That's faith. He trusted God with his heart. But then he showed that that was the case through his deeds, through the way that he lived. His faith was real, but it was untested. And then he had this opportunity to be tested, to show that he really believed. And when, when he went through that test, his faith was shown to be genuine. Works are the evidence of faith. Rahab believed God, but it was, it was her decision to protect God's people at the risk of her own life. It was her works that showed her faith was real. Now, I've used this illustration before, but imagine with me that you actually go out today and you take a gun, you kill somebody. And somehow, people find out about it, you get arrested, the detective finds the gun, and then you're sitting there in the courtroom and the evidence is brought out and the jury hears about the ballistics and the, uh, the fingerprints on the gun and you end up getting convicted of murder. Uh... Now, thankfully, we're not talking about, you you haven't done that, at least as far as I know. But in that scenario, what is it that got you convicted of murder? I mean, on the one hand, isn't it because you committed murder? You got convicted of killing somebody else because you killed somebody else. But in another sense, you could say that it was the evidence. It was the gun, the fingerprints, the gunpowder residue, the, the, the ballistics test that came back that got you convicted. Uh, it, it, we're talking about evidence. This is what works are. It's kind of like that smoking gun that shows that you really are who you say you are. You might say you have faith. You might agree with some doctrinal truths. You might feel a certain way. 
But the real proof is whether your faith, what you say you believe, actually affects the way you live. Do you live any differently than you otherwise would as a result of believing in Jesus? And if the answer is no, then somewhere along the way something is off and you have no reason to believe that the kind of faith that you possess is actually saving faith. What a sobering reality. There are many, many, many professing believers who say they have faith, but they don't do anything about it. They don't read God's word. They don't gather with the body of Christ, the local church. They're not generous toward those in need. They, they don't forgive people who wrong them. They sleep around. Their faith makes absolutely no difference whatsoever in their life. Zero. And what James is saying is, that's not faith. And we need to think about that for a minute. If it's true that my works, particularly the way that I treat those who are vulnerable and in need, the people who can't do anything good back to me if I do something good for them, like James has brought up multiple times, if it's true that my works show whether my faith is real or fake, then I've got some questions. So consider with me not just the risk of faith without works and the relationship between faith and works, but two real-life questions about faith and works. Here are the questions. Question one, if this is the case, then how can I know that I'm saved at all? If this is the case, then how can I know that I'm saved at all? Can I really ever be confident that my faith is real? I don't perfectly obey. I make selfish choices. I sin. I, I, how can an imperfect, inconsistent person like me have confidence that I'm in Christ? That's question one. Question two, if compassion towards the needy and the vulnerable is so central to the Christian faith, then how can I practically live that out today? Because I'm kind of convicted about that, and I want to make sure I'm walking in obedience. So we'll get to that second question in just a moment, but let's go back to the first one. If faith without works is dead, then how can I, an imperfect sinner, have any confidence at all that I'm saved? Now, James doesn't give us a full answer to that question here just in this passage alone. So this is kind of a rabbit trail, but I've learned as a pastor that this is one of the most important questions that, that Christians ask in their life at any given time. Like we all need to know the answer to this. And, and the first thing that we need to say about it, based on what we've discussed so far, is that if you go to your life and you take stock and there is zero evidence that your relationship with Jesus has affected the way that you live, then you need to deal with the reality that you may not be a Christian, friend. Do not play around with this. This is your soul we are talking about. This is dead serious. If you die without Christ, you will be utterly, eternally destroyed by the wrath of God's burning judgment forever. You might not think that's very tasteful to say, but I do not care. We need to deal with this. Like, we need to set an appointment up today or this week. We need to talk. 
Because according to the word of God, there is no other name under heaven given among men by where, whereby we might be saved. There is only one mediator between God and man. There is no other way to be right with God than through Jesus Christ. And if your so-called trust in him isn't having an impact on the way that you live, then you may not be a Christian and you need to get that settled. But let me also make something very clear. Part of the blessing of real faith, of saving faith, is the settled and unmistakable assurance that you are genuinely, truly the child of God. That is part of what real faith entails. God wants you to know. Faith, he says in the letter to the Hebrews, is the assurance of things hoped for. This means that if you're a genuine believer, your good God, your heavenly Father, he doesn't want you sitting there doubting it all the time. He wants you to know. If you're a believer, God intends for you to know that. So I know there are many faith traditions that teach that you can have saving faith and then one day lose it. And with all due respect to my brothers and sisters in Christ who teach that, That type of teaching does violence to the kind of confidence God wants us to have in Christ. He wants us to know that we're in him. The scriptures are clear. Christ doesn't lose you like a pair of cheap sunglasses. He isn't going to say, well, you know, I saved him, but I didn't realize quite well I was getting into with this guy. I'm going to let him go. No, he holds on to us. If he's got you now, he's got you for eternity. Yes, it's true that some people start out in church talking the religious talk, and then they end up falling away. But the Apostle John makes it clear that that's because they were never part of the family of God to begin with. This is one of the reasons why God allows trials and temptations in your life. It gives you the opportunity to respond in faith. Peter says that that kind of faith, the kind of faith that's tested, is more precious than gold. So if you're struggling with all of this and you're living in fear and you're starting to doubt, let me just give you a few ways to find confidence in Christ instead of giving in to despair. And there are lots of things that we could say about this, but I'll just mention a few. First of all, Do not mistake the convicting of the Holy Spirit for the condemnation of the Holy Spirit. Don't mistake the convicting work of the Holy Spirit for the the condemnation of the Holy Spirit. If you are being made aware of the fact that that you have sin, then it may be that the Holy Spirit is challenging you to grow. It may be your heavenly father disciplining his son because he loves him. Satan points out our faults to mock us. The Holy Spirit points out our thoughts to mold us into the image of Christ. And that's a good thing. He does that with his children. It's evidence that we are his children. So do not mistake the conviction of the Holy Spirit for his condemnation. Secondly, take advantage of the means that God uses to remind you of his loving kindness. This is why I I was eager today for us to celebrate the Lord's table because as we're reminded of the fact that Christ's body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us, and that when we participate in Christ through faith, that we actually get to share all of him. Like, we need to remember that. We need to be reminded of that because uh, our sin and because Satan causes us constantly to doubt. 
If you don't spend time in relationship with other believers, of course you're going to struggle. God has given them to you to point out evidences of the Spirit's work in your life and to encourage you and prod you on in love and good works. So please take advantage of the means that God gives to reassure his children of his unrelenting love. I'll give you a third one, and we could say many more than this. But thirdly, eagerly, zealously, act like Jesus. Eagerly, zealously, act like Jesus. Use your spiritual gifts in the service of the church. Spend time in prayer and fasting with your heavenly Father. Avoid entanglements with the things of this life. Act like Jesus. And I think you'll find that if your faith is genuine, that 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 obedience is going to strengthen your relationship with him and strengthen the confidence that you have in his work. So I feel like that is so little a a treatment of a very big topic. But know this, God, if you're in Christ, God wants you to know that you're in Christ. Okay, let's move on. I'm going to go to the next question, next real-life question. Some of you are sitting there, and you're thinking, you know what? I know I'm in Christ. I know I'm a believer. But the truth is, as I've been reading the, the letter of James, and, and we've been going through this series, some things have jumped out to me, and I've realized that God expects me to be compassionate toward those who are vulnerable and weak toward those who are in need, and I feel like I need to grow in that, and I want to know how How can I do that? How can I practically love my neighbor today? I know my faith is real. I've been convicted about this specific area of obedience. Uh, By the way, don't think we've moved so far beyond James's culture in our day that this is not a need. I mean, think about the, excuse me, the city of Mineral Wells, almost a fourth of the households in Mineral Wells subsist below the poverty line. Did you know that? Uh, more than a fourth of children ages 0 to 18, I didn't realize this, more than a fourth of children ages 0 to 18 live in households below the poverty line. Uh, And that is really a vulnerable place to be. Probably many of you, if not most of you, have spent time there, and you know how difficult it is. I would venture uh, to guess that this is something that we understand. Uh, We also know that many of our young people are growing up in broken homes. Drug addiction is all over the place. There are needs all over the place, so don't assume they're not there. So what can you do? Let me just give you a couple really quick things. Uh, First of all, decide how much you're willing to spend. Decide how much you're willing to spend. Now, I don't necessarily mean money. It may involve money, but think about your time. Think about the things that you do with your time. And if God is leading you to do something, what are you willing to clear off your plate in order to put that thing on? Decide how much you're willing to spend. It's gonna cost you emotionally. Decide how much you're willing to spend. Number two, pray for guidance. Ask God to show you what to do. Pray for guidance. Number three, just start somewhere. Just start somewhere. If you have questions, by the way, just put, if you want to do one of these things, just put your contact information in that contact card in the bulletin and put it in the offering plate on your way out. I'll connect you to the right person. But here are some things you can do. The Mineral Center of Life is always in need of volunteers, and I'm sure that there's a way that you can help there. 
the, the Salvation Army is connected with the Mineral Center of Life. I'm sure there are needs with the Salvation Army. Meals on Wheels. There are people in our church who do Meals on Wheels. They can connect you with some needs that need to be met there. The Benevolence Ministry of Indian Creek Baptist Church. We need people to invest in that. And maybe that's something God is calling you to do. Uh, Cocoon Pregnancy Resource Center. Reaching out to the most vulnerable of all unborn children and their mothers, and they need volunteers. On Wednesday nights, we gather here for just a few minutes at Indian Creek at 6.30, and then we go out into the community and we meet needs, and, and, and we use that as sort of a platform to talk about Jesus Christ, and we would love to have more people involved in that. Matter of fact, this week, we need somebody with a rototiller and a strong back to come and help us work on the park in Southwest Mineral Wells so that we can bless that community. If that's something that you'd be willing to find out more about, just put your name and information in that contact card and give it in. So my point is just start somewhere. You know, make a commitment to just start. Uh, next, number next, use your, your professional skills. Uh, some men in our church, they've actually gone out and served our community by helping with plumbing problems in people's houses, people who couldn't afford to do anything about it. Uh, others have provided legal aid, not in our church, but I know of some uh, who are members of other churches in our community who provided legal aid. Some of you are financial experts, like certified financial experts. You could help someone start a budget and get on their feet. Use your professional skills. Uh, finally, I would encourage you to do this. Be entrepreneurial. Be entrepreneurial. Here's what I mean by that. There is a tendency in churches like ours to say, Pastor Jake, you tell me when to show up and what to bring and what to wear, and I can give you at least 45 minutes of my time every other month. You know? And we, we think, okay, you plan it, and I'll come up and help as much as I can. And that's the way we tend to think in an institutional mindset. But what I would encourage you to do is to think this way. This is what the New Testament teaches. Our job as elders and ministry staff is not to do all the work and then people come help us where we need them. Our job is to equip you to do what God has called you to do. And so if God has given you a burden, go and do it and we will help as much as we possibly can. I'll give you a couple things that we need in our community. We need more gospel-centered addiction recovery in our, in our community. We need, here's another thing that we need, we need some kind of a buddy program or mentorship program in our schools. And this has been brought to me, but I don't have the capacity to bring it about. Maybe some, that's something that God has laid on your heart. But the point is, be entrepreneurial about it. Now I know that that's kind of an aside, but I, some, some of you have really struggled with this, and as I've heard feedback about the book of James, we all want to be faithful, and we want to do what God's calling us to do, and, and I want you to know that there is a way to do it. There's a way to fulfill what God is calling us to do, and to actually show that we believe what God has said by showing that with our behaviors and with our lifestyle. Uh, would you just take a moment now to pray with me, and let's uh, make a transition into our time of response. Let's pray. Father, uh, this passage is intuitively simple, but 
very easy to misunderstand. And so, Lord, I pray that there would be no misunderstanding, that none of us would walk away thinking that we need to do something to get your attention or earn your love, or presuming that just because we said some magic word that we have a relationship with you. And so, Lord, I pray, first of all, that there would be understanding and spirit conviction in this room today. But, Lord, as we make a transition to remembering the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would empower each of us to examine him or herself and to take the next step in our pursuit of you and in our desire to live faithfully. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.